morning, everyone. Brian, thank you to you and the team leading us. Uh, God becomes more real to me when I hear people singing about him corporately. Yeah, thank you. Uh, if you've started coming to our church since Easter before, you don't have the slightest idea who I am, and I'm not going to tell you. Um, I actually serve alongside Rob as teaching pastor here, and this is my chance to have an opportunity to speak for the next couple weeks on this redeeming work issue that we're in. It's been a tremendous series, and as uh, Pastor Rob has led us in it, uh, he helped us to see in the first couple weeks that work is really meant to be good and, and life-producing and flourishing for us. Uh, so as I was looking at it all, I'm studying the scriptures this week and I'm trying to get ready to go. And for me, studying scripture, praying, meditating, and songs always happen all together. So I thought, I think what Pastor Rob was saying in the first couple weeks that work is good and flourishing and, and life producing, I found myself going back to a film that came out 78 years ago. I am not that old, okay. But 78 years ago, you know, it, 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 when I think about work and joy in work, I go, hi-ho, hi-ho. Don't you? See, it's off to work, I go. Or, or someone said, hi-ho, hi-ho, I-o, I-o, I-o. And, and, but it's the concept of the seven dwarfs loving their work. Well, no wonder. They worked in a diamond mine. And then the diamond mine, they found all these huge... You, Look it up on YouTube. I mean, they got these great big gems and they're thrusting them about and polishing them and then they take their, their lunch bags and they, hi-ho, hi-ho, and they're heading home. Well, there is something real to that. When God created his good world and he said it's very, very good, work was a part of that goodness. Humankind was placed on earth to govern the earth to tend the earth. It's meant to be part of our happiness, work is. We'd be terribly bored if we didn't do anything but pleasure stuff. And so we can start to understand it's a good thing. It's how we flourish. It doesn't matter if you're blue collar, white collar, pink collar, service industries, or I've, I've adopted a new collar. I call it the red collar people. Those that work in helping the soul to grow, teachers and, and, and ministers, blue, white, pink, red, chartreuse, I don't care. Wherever God has you in your work world, he intends for it to be something that actually brings meaning to your life as whatever you do contributes to the world. I like that. I like that. I like that. I like it. If it's true, though, why is work so hard? I mean, most of us, if, if we're really honest. In fact, Dirk and I were talking. You know the guy that plays the drummer? Uh, he doesn't play the drummer. He plays the drums. <laughs> Sorry, Dirk. He's a great drummer. And he worships God. Well, we were talking in the back. And he said, man, if only my work allowed me to do what I, what I was made for. And, and I said, I know, about 90% of my work has to be done in order for me to do what I was made for. Work, work can be extremely hard. So I thought of another song 
Does anybody know what that one is? Nine to five. Came out 35 years ago. Uh, working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Barely getting by. It's all taken, never given. Well, just use your mind. But they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five. Okay, so it's a story of these. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. It's the story of these three. Uh, women who are overworked, misused employees, and they fantasize about how they're going to get their mean boss back. Then they stop fantasizing and they just do it. It's a, it's a good film. Okay. But it, but it expresses this, this hardship that work is for us. And, and it should be because it's really there. I remember first learning this. I, I was maybe 15. And my dad gave me a summer job working in the little company that he was co-owner of, just a little company, and it was the jukebox business, you know, playing music. And he had thousands of 45 RPM records that I was cataloging and organizing for him. And so I would go in with him to San Francisco and then drive home 30 miles and do it most of the summer. This one day we were driving home. We were going over the Bay Bridge. My dad's friend... Uh, Bill had come as well. Bill was driving, and the two of those men were talking as I was in the back seat. And my dad, sometimes my dad could get kind of sad. And he looks at Bill, he says, I don't know. I don't know how much longer I can do this. If it wasn't for the family, I don't know. I just don't know if I can keep doing this. And I thought, wow, I, I'd, I'd never even thought of work as being hard and frustrating to my father because I only saw as a, you know, a selfish little kid all that it provided. He retired at 59. He couldn't take it any longer and then said his retirement was the worst decision he ever made. Yeah, if, if, you work, if work is too hard, it's hard. If you don't work at all, it's hard. That's where I started learning about this, the hardness of work. You say, well, yeah, but when Rob was speaking about it, Lon, Genesis 1 and 2, it's, it's hi-ho, hi-ho. I say, well, that, but that's because he didn't get to Genesis 3, which is where we're beginning today. Please open your Bibles or turn them on to the book of Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible. And I'm in the third chapter uh, if you don't have one, we provide them on the backs of the seats for you. And chapter 3 is that passage where suddenly there is trouble in paradise. All right, the whole chapter, 1 through like 21, 22, we're not going to read it all, but many of you will be a bit familiar with it, some of you more so than others. The whole first part of it is that even though they were in paradise... Genesis chapter 3, even though they were in paradise, they still weren't completely satisfied. It's the nature of being human. And the serpent comes to Eve and tempts Eve to take fruit from what tree? Anybody know? Tree of knowledge of good and... All right. Now, the knowledge of good was a fine thing to, to seek. The knowledge of evil, not so much so. And God had put one tree in the center of his garden. Says, you guys have a great time. 
at play and at work. Just enjoy yourself. Eat from anything in the garden except that tree. And sure enough, that's the tree they go for. Now, just a little aside. I've always wanted to ask God this, and I'm not sure I've got the bottom answer to it yet, but here's the question. Why'd you put the tree there? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? A couple of thoughts on that. Number one is God created humankind in his own image and out of love. Relationship. And there is no true love if there's not freedom, right? The opportunity to choose. Uh, that tree symbolized, as it stood there in the center of the garden, that there's one thing I've asked you not to do. Will you in your love for me not do that? Second reason I think in it, and got some help from Tim Keller on this this week, and that is that tree symbolized there in the center of the garden that humans were never meant to make their own way in life, but that God was the provider and God had his fences of protection around them. There's certain things they ought not to do and if they loved God and if they were willing to follow God, they would simply obey. It was the opportunity to learn obedience from which we get freedom. Just a couple of thoughts on that. Well, anyway, they, they ate off it and they had no idea what was about to be unleashed. Read with me now, starting in verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Now, of course, God knew they did. Have you done that, Adam? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this? you have done two powerful words coming out of God number one did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to and secondly what have you done it was more than anyone could ever imagine what happened as a result of that the woman says the end of verse 13 the serpent deceived me and I ate then the Lord God said to uh, the serpent because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Serpent, Satan. And incidentally, Satan is the one who wanted to climb to the stars and be like God. This is God saying, you will never be more than someone crawling on his belly in my universe. Wow. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and her offspring will crush your head. You will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. 
With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed, Adam, is the ground. Because of you, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for, uh, for, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, Adam. Wow. A, a, a horrid severity is unleashed when they chose to be like God. Because remember what the serpent had said to Eve? Oh, the Lord knows that if you eat of that tree, you will, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. That's what the temptation was. To be in charge, to be fully in command of their own life, to be like God. And the reason God set it up the other way is because humans don't do being God well. It was for protection that he set it up that he would lead and we would follow. And yet they did. The consequence is severe. Uh, the consequences are such that it's gonna, it's gonna cause a rippling effect throughout all of living creation, humankind, male and female. It's gonna cause trouble in the family systems. There's gonna be great pain in childbirth and great pain in rearing children, right? There is going to be enmity between husband and wife trying to understand their roles. And then it's gonna mess up the whole world of work. The two great things that we spend most of our time doing, family and work, it's going to cause devastation to take place. I like the way that Tim Keller has it in his book, The Effects of Sin. When they obtained the knowledge of evil, it unraveled the fabric of the entire world. The spiritual order. Remember, God says, where are you, Adam? Their relationship was severed. Psychological, physical, social, environmental, cursed is the very ground upon which you now stand. St. Paul says that the whole creation is in decay and bondage. They went from tending trees to a world where we try to come out of tornadoes and tsunamis. That's what happened. Everything started coming undone. Devastation disorder, disintegration of relationships and the world at large. God knew that if they took of that, it was literally going to cause sin to multiply like the Zika virus and spread everywhere on the planet. In fact, only a couple of chapters later, if you want to slip over there, I've also got it on the screen, but in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become from the time when the garden ended. It had just gotten worse and worse and worse on the earth and that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
Evil, the knowledge of evil, knowing evil loosened evil, and evil has more power over the will than being good. It went everywhere. It's in everything. There's nothing that is as good as it should be. Solzhenitsyn says this, the great Russian scholar and poet, novelist, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. The line separating good and evil climbs right through every human heart. That's the world that we live in now. Everything's unraveled. And even the goodness of work gets hit. That's why work is hard. Paradise lost. That's what happens. And so that now as we turn to think more fully just about the whole concept of work, uh, listen to what Solomon wrote in chapter 2, verse 17 of Ecclesiastes. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. I don't know what kind of work you're in. Uh, and I don't know where you'd be. The, the statistics suggest that 75% of all Americans hate their work and don't derive meaning from it. Uh, I wouldn't say I hate work, but I would say work is sure hard. Even in a perfect place called Wheaton Bible Church, we're hard. Some days harder than others. Some days just kind of crawl into bed, knowing I'll wake up, but hoping that it takes all night before I do. That usually doesn't happen either anymore. Hard. Uh, I remember when I first started my work life, you know, I was still in high school and then in college, the jobs that I had, there'd be a big clock on the wall and I'd keep looking at the clock. And you know what I was hoping for? When will this be over so I can get out of here? And then I started getting jobs where I looked at the clock and said, oh, there's too much to do before it's over. And I, and, and I found it was burdensome on either side of that clock. <laughs> either just, gosh, this is so awful, get me out of here, or, oh, there's so much to do, I can't get it. Done. That's why God gave me Marie. She can do it all. <laughs> She's here. I just scored points. All right. What are, what are the things that makes work so hard? Why is it so difficult? Well, I've come up with four things to present here that I want to give to you. When work is hard, why is it hard? Here's, here's the first one. When our reach exceeds our grasp, when our vision, when our fantasies, when our hopes about work are here, and reality comes in right in around here, when our reach exceeds our grasp. When I was a little boy, I wanted to be a jet fighter pilot. Anyone else? Okay, when I was a boy, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. Anybody else? Yeah. 
We, we all had our fantasies to be a nurse, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. Uh, but, and, and, oh, 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 and it will be so great if I can attend to that. But in my case, the skills weren't there for me to be a top fighter pilot. I can sing Top Gun better than Tom uh, Cruise, but I could never fly a plane like him. Uh, I heard the ping of the baseball bats this morning in the park as I walked into the church, and I thought of Anthony Rizzo just launching that home run yesterday. I have to play golf to launch any ball, and it doesn't go very far when I do. (laughs) One of the great American films is called On the Waterfront. It came out in the 1950s, black and white, longshoreman, New York City, in the hardness of work and, and dreamers wishing they could do something else of which the protagonist is, is Marlon Brando. And, and it's said that the, the line he says in On the Waterfront is what catapulted him into being considered one of the great actors of all time. He wants to be a prize fighter. He's trained to be a prize fighter. He's not half bad, but he can't make it. And he cries out, and this is a scene of great agony where he cries out and he says, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. And he was crying, the cry of all humanity. What we could have been. Sometimes our reach, our vision, exceeds our grasp. That causes the work that we do to be hard. Second one, second one. I just put it up there. When life happens, you know, on the way to living, life happens. You say, well, what, what, what do you mean that? Well, you make plans, but life happens. Uh, you have work, but you have a nine-to-five boss. Uh, you have plans, but there's resistance against your plans. Or, or your investments crash when the market crashes. Or the tornado hits your building. Or, or war occurs. Or your parents died early, so you had to work in things that you weren't trained for. Or you went to college and you got a degree in something wondrous, like, I got a master's degree in making the world a better place. So I work at Starbucks now. You know, it, the, the, the reality is not, and life happens to you. I, I've had some wonderful jobs. I'm so fortunate. But they were hard. And part of the reason that they were hard is, well, like the last one I had, I had two organizations that were both my boss. And each of them thought they knew what my organization should do. I knew that I knew, but I couldn't make them believe that I knew better than they knew. And so, life happens. On the way to living, life happens. And you end up doing what you can do or what pays the bills, but your hopes may be a bit dashed because life happens happens it's real this is a broken disordered world third reason that life becomes hard is when we tend to make work and achievement our goal for our own identity 
Who are you? People will say. And you don't know how to answer. What do you do? And then we tell them. And it usually has to do with our work. It might also have to do with our home. Uh, the the, the stay-at-home mother or father says, I, I, I have the great joy of working diligently to raise children that don't appreciate it. Okay? Although, I, you guys, i got to tell you this. When I was walking down the hall just before we started, uh, this mother's walking along. She's got this, like, four-year-old little boy. And he's looking up at his mommy, and he says something to her. And she goes, you want to marry me? <laughs> yeah, you don't And I said, ma'am, treasure that. It's not going to stay long. Uh, <laughs> and, yet, and then we start defining ourselves. I am what I do. And it really doesn't matter how great your achievements get. Solomon uh, achieved everything in his work he wanted to do. And he says, I still feel like it's meaningless. Because number one, it doesn't matter what I did. I'm going to pass away and no one's going to remember. It doesn't matter what I did. It will be changed by others. But most of us aren't Solomon. Most of us don't have all the money, wealth, and power, and, and, and skill in the world. And so we start out with a light, lot less. And then we still try to find our identity by it. Listen, friends, one of the things we love to tell you here is your identity has already been defined by God. He created you in his own image and likeness. And he likes you. He really likes you. He loves you. Our identity is that we are made by God and are loved by God. That can weather any storm. But when we let our job try to define us, we always end up with what I call wounded identity. Fourth, finally, uh, and I spent a little more time on this fourth reason why life is so hard uh, because I think this is the worst danger of all. It's, it's, uh, it's self-sufficiency. When, when my work tells me that I don't need God. Now, the job doesn't say that, but as we assume it, as we complete it, as we accomplish it, we're always in danger. What I did. And forgetting that what you have is what you've been given by God. We're always in danger of that. Uh, now, just as we read in Genesis 3, and then we read a little bit in Genesis 6, within five uh, chapters later, in chapter 11, you see this played out. I have done this. I don't need God. The Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven. And then I have it in italics so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
And so, following Genesis, driven out of the garden, generation after generation, then comes the evil, then the flood destroys it all, and it starts again, generation after generation and generation. Once again, mankind moves toward the thing is, I will be my own God. They start to build this city. They build this tower. And the towers they would build in those days were called, uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, ziggurats. We've got one for you here. They were temples built, and as you can see, they had developed the process of brick and mortar so they could actually build them higher than they ever could with just stones and rocks. And they started building and building and building and building and building. And you can tell this one looks, what, maybe about halfway done? Really remember that image. It's going to be important in a minute here, about halfway done. But you know why they built the ziggurats? so that they could climb to the gods and be on the same par as the gods. It's the same thing that happened in Genesis 3. Take of the fruit and you will be like God. There's the great temptation. And so the building of their city, this great work of building a great city, great towers was really only so they'd make a name for themselves that they would Rise to the gods. Self-sufficiency. Independence. I don't need God. Well, look what happens in the story. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they'd begun to do this, then nothing would be impossible to them. Come, let us... Either the let us either means the Trinity or the angelic host. Let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building their city. They lost their job. They stopped building the city. (laughs) Some of you say, well, that was a bit rough. Uh, you know, they couldn't talk anymore to each other, so, that, so they couldn't function socially or institutionally. And they start spreading all over the earth. Well, God will do anything to stop people from trying to read God, whereby it unleashes evil that destroys everything. He will do anything to stop humankind from taking God-like status, building temples to the stars, I'm glad he did. It's actually mercy. Because what would have happened if they had become all of that? They would have dominated all other peoples and it had been a slave state. Wow. So there they are, the four. Reach its seeds, grasp. Life just happens and we can't fulfill our dreams. When we make our identity through our work, makes work awfully hard can't live up to it can't ever satisfy your need to be loved and finally the temptation that because of success in our work we don't need God those things are all there and they all get in the way well what do we do about it what do we do about it Um, when work is hard what do we do about it well number one I've got these for you on the screen as well 
we've got to learn, if you will, to be comfortable in tension. Sounds like an oxymoron, right? Comfortable tension. But it's true. Uh, remember that God created work to be hi-ho, hi-ho. But we live on the side of Genesis 3 and on which says work can get really, really hard and there's all sorts of reasons for it of which some have been given. And there's a tension between the good and the hard. We just learn to live there. Understand that we're not alone. Pretty much everyone else is too. Thank God for the good times. Thank God for the hard times because even in the hard times of our work, our professions, God is building our character into the likeness of Jesus. He's got purpose for these things. That's number one. Learn to live in the tension. Number two. Remember Jesus. When, when, when this hit me yesterday afternoon when I was finishing up the, the message, I, it just really knocked me deeply. I remembered our Lord Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem and, and Jesus looks at Jerusalem and Jerusalem was rejecting him. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you together as a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. And I thought, Jesus' job was to save the world. He wanted to give hope to Jerusalem. He didn't want Jerusalem to be obliterated by Rome 40 years after Jesus left. But he couldn't make them follow. And I thought, whoa. My Lord Jesus thought work was hard too. <laughs> my Lord Jesus didn't think that it was all glory. He was disappointed deeply. He wept tears when his work wasn't going right. Kind of nice to know. But it goes even farther. And I don't, I don't mean to be crass. I just want to get the point across. His job killed him. His final work day was to go to that cross to take on the sins of you and me. And it killed him. He knew it was going to. So friends, if work is hard for you, you are not alone. Okay? Third. You get to have the joy of hearing him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. That's a direct quote from Jesus in one of the stories he told. He, he, he had told a story about how a rich uh, owner had given uh, five bags of gold to one person. I think it was two or was it three to the next one? and one to the third and he said go invest this and what Jesus was really saying the way I've made you with your skills your calling your time your work, go invest what I've given to you whether you're a five bag person a three bag person or a one bag person whatever you've been given you just go invest that you serve the world with that 
And then they all came back in the story and they reported in. And the first two had invested. They had used what God had made them to be to help the world be a better place. And they got to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, I don't know if you're blue collar or pink collar or red collar or white collar or no collar. I just know that whatever you do, there's nobility to it. All of the work on this earth has nobility because our God created this work and created us to work it. And he longs to just say to you, well done, good job. The way you put that roof on that house, nicely done. The way you clean that home, nicely done. The way you change those diapers again and again and again and again, well done. The way you modeled that corporate merger where not only the stockholders but the employees benefited, well done. That's what Jesus wants to say to you about your work. I close with this story. A missionary couple who'd been serving for 40 years in Africa were coming home, the early part of the 20th century. They were on a steamer coming from the west coast of Africa to the United States. On that same great ocean liner was Theodore Roosevelt, president of the United States. They had been in Africa for 40 years serving with nobody knowing. He went for a month on safari. They came home on the same ship. And when the ship landed, there was parades, there were bands, there were crowds of people to cheer the president who had come home from one month on safari. When the crowd cleared away, an old man and an old woman stood on the dock alone. After 40 years in Africa, no one there to meet him. And the husband says to his wife, he says, I don't understand. We give our whole lives. He goes for a month on safari. There's no one here to even meet us. We've come home and there's no one here to meet us. And his precious wife looks at him. She says, that's because we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Pray with me. Father, unto you, each word uttered I give to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would make truth out of presentation. And I pray that every person here might know that whatever their work is, it has value to you. And even when hard, they are not alone. Amen and amen.